If you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Today we are launching a new idea we're calling Quick Kind Bites. These are shorter episodes that feature educators and education leaders outside the state of Hawaii. Today's Quick Kind Bite is with Chris Baum, founder of the Millennium School in San Francisco, and most recently the founder of Argonaut. Here's how Chris is described at the Argonaut website, and I quote, Chris has spent the better part of 20 years as an education leader and innovator specifically in service to middle school youth. Maybe it's because his middle school journey was so crummy. Maybe it's because the research on middle school is so perplexing. It is a time of incredibly rapid development for all young people, not only intellectually, but also socially and emotionally. Yet it is a time when so many lose their interest in learning. What are we doing wrong with middle school? Chris's career has been dedicated to activating the hidden potential of these years. He first taught as a middle school science teacher and then founded a nonprofit to reinvigorate middle schoolers' love of learning. For his work, he received the Ashoka Fellowship given to leading social entrepreneurs around the world. Chris then co-founded and was head of school at Millennium School, a progressive independent middle school in San Francisco, California. To sum it up, As Argonaut's founder and director, Chris has had way too much fun cooking up the ideas for this camp. Argonaut brings together all of his research and leadership in middle school education. With playfulness and personal challenges, Argonaut is designed to tap into the amazing potential of middle schoolers everywhere. And now, here's my quick kind bite with Chris Baum. Chris Baum, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Josh. So Chris, this is my first uh, episode that I'm calling Quick Kind Bites, which in mm. Hawaii, uh, kind is sort of, you know, type. And mm. so these these episodes, unlike my f- formal episodes that I put out each Monday, is designed to be a little shorter, quite a bit shorter, actually. Um, and just kind of a, let's call it a lively dance through a number of things 
um, that we're both going to be super interested in. And um, the idea is that I'm going to use these short episodes, these quick kind bites as a way to reach out to people outside the state of Hawaii to get some ideas and innovations and creativities and imaginations so that our Hawaii listeners can benefit and also everybody else who's listening to the podcast across the world. So I'll just uh, jump right into it here. Wonderful. So let's start with Spark. Um, So in 2000, between 2004 and 2013, you designed, launched, and led a national nonprofit to re-engage at-risk youth and uh, around lower dropout rates. So what was Spark? How did it, how did you get Sparked to Spark? And then how, mm. how did it unfold for you? Mm. Thank you, Josh. Um, so I've had the privilege now to work with middle schoolers for 17 years, which feels almost hard to believe. I don't feel old enough that, for that to be true, but it is. And you know, there are a couple through lines that go through that work. And with Spark, the essence of it was relevance. In classroom environments, sometimes it's hard to generate that sense of relevance that what we're offering here, whether it's science or math or English, whatever it might be, really applies to the daily realities that kids, particularly kids who are struggling with disadvantaged situations, uh, see on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And when I jumped into being a middle school teacher, you know, full of excitement and naivete and not really knowing what to do, I pretty quickly ran up against this sense that even if I am you know, the most animated and passionate adult in front of them, it's not enough. Um, They really need to connect the dots through their own lived experience so that they see how this knowledge is used and they see where it can get them. And I was grappling at the time, you know, with my own sense of uh, privilege and how can I cross those divides that I see around me. And I think one of the biggest forms of privilege is uh, network. And I realized I had this privilege of knowing people in many professions and the kids I was working with who were mostly in poverty had, uh, they were isolated in many ways Mm -hmm. in the city. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling to figure out how to be a good teacher. I'm just at the very beginning here. I'm making every mistake in the book, but one thing I can do is connect them and help them, you know, if they're interested in computers, I can connect them with a computer scientist. Mm. If they're interested in biology, I can connect them with someone who does that. If they love to write, I can find a writer. So at first, it was just an attempt to put my own network to use. And then I realized that we had kind of stumbled into this, in a way, oldest play in the book with education, which is the idea of apprenticeship. Ah, right. You know, mm-hmm. this just deep, powerful, natural way that we learn when we're, we're motivated. We want to understand the skills that someone who has mastery is showing. We have a connection with them that's meaningful. This is just one of the deepest, you know, highest bandwidth ways that humans learn, I think. Mm-hmm. And that is what Spark is, you know, creating apprenticeships for kids so that they see in the after school hours, uh, just how awesome their path can be and how much school can support them on that road. How did you make contact with schools, with middle schools, you know, in the process of developing Spark? Like what, what was it like when you made the approach? 
Well, at, at first it was tricky because uh, my co-founder and I were in our early 20s and frankly, we looked like we were still in high school <laughs> and we were showing up, you know, trying to convince busy middle school principals to let us run this program they'd never heard of before. Right. But eventually we found one who was willing to take a risk with us. We had a great experience at this one school serving a very diverse population and then the word started to spread and we had invitations at other schools we began to get more interest than we knew what to do with. And, and then this whole crazy 10-year journey of growing it into a national organization started you know, after just having 12 kids in the very first program. Right. And I'm imagining since this is your focus was on middle school, that you were going to be paying attention to the metrics or the numbers, the data, because the object here is to prevent dropout, right? And to, to engage the students to get them you know, thinking about the relevance of, of learning. So how did you go about thinking through what the longitudinal approach would be to keeping track of what happened? Yeah, that was such a, a fundamental challenge for us, especially at the beginning when we were a very small entity. But the over time, the basic you know, theory of change uh, developed, which is that we know from a large amount of research that when kids enter middle school, they tend to go off of a cliff in terms of their engagement with learning. Uh, they feel disconnected, their motivation is gone, um, they have less of a sense of relationship with their teachers. Um, and there's, I think, bigger reasons for that we can get into later. So we wanted to see that we were reversing that um, on some of the metrics where it showed itself. And that are things like attendance, grades, and then students' own self-reports and teacher reports about their levels of engagement. Right. So, Wow, that's, yeah. that's super interesting. Okay, so uh, we could go for hours on Spark, yes. but I'm trying to be <laughs> disciplined here because this is supposed to be a quick kind bite. But two more questions yep. about Spark. The first one is like operationally, what was it like on the ground when the thing was unfolding? Like once you'd made an approach and you, and you had met a principal and there was an agreement, then what actually happened with the kids and Spark? Well, the, the essence of it is being matchmakers. So finding out from students things that they would be passionate about, mm. whether that's a, a job they've seen on a TV show or something they've imagined or a subject they like in school, video game they love, starting with whatever we have. And then on the other side of the operation, reaching out to as many adults as we can find in the community, you know, through companies, nonprofits, agencies, mm. and then trying to be the matchmaker between these two groups. It's amazing how many adults are willing to say yes to sharing a skill that they have with someone local who needs it, right. but they don't ever get asked. So that was our, our mission in a nutshell. Wow, that's so fantastic. So we actually have something like Spark unfolding here in Hawaii. It's called Climb High. Um, mm. In fact, I, I in my normal regular episodes, um, at the midpoint break, I run several PSAs, and one of them is a Climb High PSA. So it's the same idea. It's a Match.com. How do you match kids with interested people in the in the business community, in the nonprofit sector, um, and how does that uh, ultimately benefit the child or the kid in terms of their interests in what's going on, you know, in the greater community? So this is like super interesting. So okay, here's the last question. Um, you raised quite a bit of money with Spark, and I'm I'm super, you know, through foundations and yeah. other organizations. So I'm super interested in the pitch. Like, how did you 
pitch mm. it. If you went to company X, if you went to, you know, the Packard Foundation or whatever, what was the pitch? You know, the essence is that middle school is when we lose a lot of kids. It's when their engagement diminishes hugely often. And then we see the results of that in the transition to high school. So the dropout rate in high school, I think there's a common misconception that it happens toward the ends, like kids almost make it. Um, but actually, a lot of the dropping out happens in ninth and 10th grade. Huh. And it's kids who lost engagement in middle school, started to feel like school is irrelevant, um, doesn't speak to their day-to-day realities, don't feel connected to any adults there. Learning seems a little bit like a game. And then they show up in high school where things get harder and possibly the rest of their lives get more intense. And then they leave. Um, And so that was our pitch that we know if we can keep that spark of learning alive or reignite it in middle school so they have a personal sense of purpose and a reason to go forward and a relationship with a mentor, then they are much more likely to sustain through high school and all the ups and downs. And that's what luckily the data has, has borne out over years. But predicated on the idea that the learning was going to be active, relevant, experiential, right? Exactly. Exactly. And personal. Right. Ah, boy, my middle school experience, and I I went to a school of privilege, Punahou School here in in Hawaii, um, was a miserable experience. And now I'm wishing I got to do it all over again. Really, Me too. Yeah, it would have been pretty fun because I was very motivated to be involved in my community. um, But but what happened in middle school never really sparked that at all. And it yeah. would have been really neat to see that happen. Okay. All right. So we're going to jump forward uh, in the timeline, Chris. So let's look at 2014 through just this past June, 2020. So you designed, launched, and led a groundbreaking independent middle school using developmental science and redesign adolescent that redesigned adolescent education. So we're talking about the Millennium School. So how did that come to be? Where where did that idea first appear for you? And what were the early stages of standing that concept up? Yeah. So Honestly, I think the earliest stage was similar to your story, my own middle school journey being kind of crummy. Um, in fact, that's probably saying it mildly. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not a great experience. And I thought that that's just what everybody did. But everybody hates middle school. Everybody knows middle school sucks. And that's just life. And it was only later that I realized that that, that doesn't make any sense at all. This is one of the most formative times in our lives. And we know this now from an abundance of neuroscience and psychology research. This is when a lot of our sense of self and our core identity is shaped. It's also when there's as much neurodevelopment in some measures um, as early childhood. So the, the big puzzle for me was, if this is such a rich and formative time, why does everyone think it's the worst? <laughs> you know, right. kind of the, right. the armpit of the K-12 education world, and it, it really shouldn't be. Right. Uh, and my years with Spark had exposed me to so many different middle schools, and I felt that, while there are many amazing educators that inspired me. The system as a whole wasn't inspiring and felt like it was systematically missing the point of middle school. So, of course, we decided to start our own, <laughs> again, being wonderfully naive and of motivated, course. and let's just jump in. Right. And <laughs> it was, uh, it's been an amazing ride. You know, it started with, uh, and this is such a privilege, uh, spending nearly three full years on research, where we went around the world and into our own 
you know, past and interviewing people and reading books and meeting incredible thinkers and scientists, essentially to ask the question of what is the point of early adolescence? Mm. You know, what are we designed to do? What are we primed to do developmentally at that age? And the idea is that if we can understand those drives and those fundamental kind of developmental needs, then we'll design an educational model that taps into that motivation that's already there. So it's less about, you know, giving incentives or threats, all the ways that we traditionally try to control students. Uh, it's more about being facilitators. What are they already primed to do? Mm. And, um, you know, in a nutshell, we kind of boil down all of that research into three core drives that we think define middle school into high school um, uh, developmentally. And we think of them as three questions we're trying to help kids find their own answers to. Okay. The f- first question is, who am I? Mm. And it's the search for an authentic sense of self. Uh, because we know neurologically when you enter those middle school years, the part of your brain that sees yourself in a social world turns on suddenly. <laughs> and right. all of a sudden, you realize that you're being judged and grouped or excluded constantly by everyone. And so that creates kind of a crisis of identity. And I, I think one of the reasons that middle schoolers can struggle is when um, they don't think that it's safe to be who they are or even to wonder who they are but they just start copying something that seems cool. And now already they've started to kind of lose the thread of their, their natural motivation and passion. And they're just trying to be safe. It's like, it's a very defensive posture. So instead we want them to be able to ask, who am I on any level? You know, my identity as a friend, my interests and passions, my gender identity and sexual orientation, all of those things that are bubbling up to the surface at those years, mm. we want them to have as much freedom as possible to answer that authentically. Um, so that's one. And sorry, I'll go through the other ones yeah, a little no, faster I, here. I, I uh, don't know. I want to hear all three. <laughs> this is amazing. Uh, the, the second big question developmentally is how do I relate to others? Wow. And we know that this is the age when social and emotional intelligence is absorbed and taught better than any other in life, any other time in life period. And we know that your social and emotional intelligence is more correlated to your lifelong success than IQ. And of course, ideally, you do both. You develop both. Um, But the point being, if you focus exclusively on traditional cognitive developments, you might be really missing the point here. So it's this is the time when we shape our worldview. You know, how are how do I relate to people who seem different from me? Fundamentally, am I curious and interested or defensive and skeptical? Um, how do I form a group? Uh, how do I resolve a conflict in a group? Uh, how do I form a friendship or end a friendship? Um, those are they are so motivated to learn at that age, and they show up with so much passion when you help adolescents answer those questions. They're really primed to learn that. And it's so helpful for their lives. Wow. So, you know, you know, Chris, in a weird kind of way, I know this is kind of sound really negative, but you know, in the moment, my heart is almost breaking for middle school kids who don't get to do this because in the end, over the years of middle school and high school, um, it's going to be hard for them to relate to people. Wow. This is remarkable. So, but they're so primed to do it at that particular point in their lives. Um, as they really are. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the last question is about uh, the real world, and it's you know, what will I or what do I contribute to the world? Right. And this is because you know I always say that you know, the fastest way to piss off a middle schooler is to baby them, to right. treat them like they're an elementary school kid. They hate that, and and for good reason. They know that they're developing rapidly toward adulthood. And they, they might tend to overestimate their skills a little bit, but adults systematically underestimate them. Right. And they want to move beyond the world of family. And if school feels like it's just a game to keep them occupied, they want to move beyond that too mm. and see what do people do in the real world? And can I do something valuable? Will I be valued there? Mm. And this, you know, to me, I think comes from our, you know, our deepest evolutionary psychology that need to be useful to others and to feel valuable as a result of that. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so several more questions about Millennium. Um, first one is just sort of where was it located? How many students? What was the brick and mortar? What did it look and sound and feel like? You know, those sorts of things, the description of the school. Great. Yeah, so uh, we decided to be just a middle school, so grades six through eight, mm -hmm. because we think it, it really helps to have a strong focus on those years and not just added to elementary or high school. Um, we opened a school in San Francisco, um, kind of centrally in the city as a place that we could draw kids from all walks of life and started the school as a private school to have the, the freedom to be a lab, but with a huge focus on a sliding scale tuition that would let families from any background join us. Uh, and they did. And it's about 90 students in all, so about 30 kids per grade. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I'm just suddenly remembering that one of the first moments where my my education mind was blown was a trip that I took to San Francisco. I lived in San Francisco for about eight years. So I, I went back after I was here in Hawaii and I was getting my master's and I visited the urban school um, in the in the hate. And the reason why I went there was because of a program that they were doing uh, called t uh, Telling Our Stories. So it was basically interviews with Holocaust survivors who were getting very old in the Bay Area. The kids organized the program, interviewed the survivors, transcribed the interviews and put them up on the web. And this was very early web development. Um, so I'm just, I'm marveling that, you know, in places like San Francisco and other places as well, you get these sort of hotbeds of innovation and creative thinking around teaching and learning. So, okay. So, so the next question is um, like you have described that over the years, Millennium became a place where educators came to take a look at what was going on, to study, to do research. Um, and in fact, one of the very earliest podcast episodes that I did in season one was with a young man, a middle school teacher um, on Maui, KS Maui. Um, his name is Kui Gapero, and he couldn't stop talking about his trip to Millennium. So mm. my, I guess my question is, what was it like as a school to begin to see yourself as a model that people would come and study? Like, what does that feel like? What does that sound like? You know, at first it felt bewildering, honestly, because in our very first year, we were such a scrappy startup and things were breaking. We were scrambling to make it work. And people, we had set out from the start that we want to be completely transparent. You know, people can visit at any points. All of our classrooms have an open door policy. 
So we had visitors, you know, in the first days of a brand new school when I felt like my hair was on fire <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. And what was really heartwarming about it is that how much positive feedback we got, even in those helter-skelter early days, that I think people saw we were willing to take risks mm. and try to do things really differently. And it's just surprising how rarely that happens in education. You know, a lot of things are variations on a theme. And, you know, ours is too to a certain extent, but it was maybe a bigger variation. <laughs> we were willing to radically change the school day, the week, the school calendar, how we teach, the structure of class, how we allocate time, um, what we explain to kids as being important, how we hire teachers, mm. you know, all of that topic for a longer conversation. But right. we were trying to change so many things. You know, some of which ended up working out beautifully. Others we had to change and iterate on along the way. But uh, we just we were lucky to receive a lot of interest from the start. I think because of that risk taking and and transparent approach. Yeah, when if you're a visitor and you come onto a campus, you can tell really quick whether it's a campus where risk is valued or or not. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like when people came on Millennium's campus, they could sense that right from the very beginning. Yes. And sometimes, you know, it was, it was painful because <laughs> they were witnessing, you know, we had a couple of programs in the first year that we had to radically change, but right. that in a way, you know, it created closeness with the people who were visiting. They became collaborators, not just, you know, we didn't want to be gurus here in any way. We really aren't. Right. Um, and also maybe even more importantly, it shaped the student culture of the school so profoundly that kids realize this is not about a group of adults that have everything figured out and are just serving it up every day. You know, we're all in this together. It's very democratic. Feedback is welcome. You know, we have visitors every day and the students are the ones explaining the school to them. Yeah. So that really set the tone that students have power here. Mm, yeah. Okay. So final question about Millennium. Um, so you guided the school through the transition to 100% online distance learning as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So what was that like? If you can describe the early days when you became aware that you were going to have to do that, and then what was, if you can describe the pivot and how that was done with everybody that was part of your Millennium community. Oh boy, that's a long, yeah. long answer to that one. I'm going to try to condense okay. down. Yeah, I mean, in, in essence, uh, you know, the, the first days we were scrambling like everyone else, even though we had seen it coming to some extent, you know, just like others too. Um, we were iterating as fast as the very first month when the school opened its doors. You know, to give you one example, in the first month of that pivot last spring, we at first we tried to essentially transfer all the curriculum and content online and teach it live. And like so many wow. others, we quickly realized how unsustainable <laughs> that was. Right. <laughs> right. I remember sitting in a faculty meeting at the end of the first week saying, let's take it to 75%. And then a few weeks later saying, let's take it to 50% right. <laughs> in terms of how much quantity of, of material we thought we could do in this in this format. Yeah. So that that's part of it. it was just we were iterating like anyone. Um, but then we, we did come out with a few principles that I think by the end of that crazy spring made us feel like it had actually been a really powerful and good experience. Um, one of those was to put student and faculty well-being at the very top of our list. And what that looked like in terms of practice was, for example, with students having them start and end the day in advisory as this small group where you know, we're really saying, 
our connection and our ability to be there for each other is much more important than anything else right now. Mm. And on the other side of that, the faculty, in fact, the whole team um, started and ended our day together as well. And we really shifted the tone of those meetings. It wasn't just the usual faculty meeting. It was more like a wellness meeting. You know, we would read poetry to each other. We would meditate. Um, we would just share what we're experiencing in our family lives, especially people who are caring for young kids who are suddenly now at home all day. So that, that was fundamental to place the connection first. Um, some of the other pieces that felt really important to us were to think really differently about equity. Of course, I think it's, it's clear now, and it was, it was clear even at the beginning, that this whole situation was going to worsen uh, disparities in access. Um, so everything from technology to our rules about having video on or off and respecting kids who had more or less privacy in their lives and, and the invasiveness of having video on you all the time, things like that. Um, and then we began experimenting with teaching. And actually, this is where it started to get really fun. So you know, we, we realized that sometimes a short burst meeting is better than even a, you know, 10 minutes of a burst of learning within an open Zoom room for conversation and check-ins is better than a one hour long Zoom class in a lot of cases. Right. So we changed that. Uh, we realized that we could team teach in ways that before were a lot harder to work into our schedule just for very practical reasons. And so we tried to get over the isolation that teachers felt by inviting them to create classes together much more closely than they had before. Wow. So those are a few of the ways we, we tinkered during yeah. all of that. Well, I love that idea of team teaching. It was something that I heard in an interview that I did uh, for this series with an ed tech specialist here on Oahu from Le Jardin Academy. Um, and she talked about how in the moment, especially with technologies like Zoom, it's so much better and more effective when you have two people working, you know, one person watching the chat, the other person doing whatever the interaction is with the kids. Um, and it just creates a sense of sort of solidarity in a really yes. difficult and, and painful moment. So that sounds great. Um, okay, so <clears throat> we still have Argonaut to go, but I want to ask you several questions that are just about your life and your experiences and your interests. So you talk about having a beginner's mind, Chris. You, you talk about being animated by the Zen concept of the beginner's mind, which is open to learning and change. So I think my question around that is, was that something that you were aware of very early in your life, maybe even as a child? Or did that kind of idea of having the beginner's mind sort of come up and grow in you over time? Definitely the latter. I, I did know from an early age, I wouldn't have used this word necessarily, that I am an entrepreneur through and through. Mm. I'm always cooking up ideas and I, I want to see them in reality. And later I realized that the, the secret power of, I think, many entrepreneurs, at least mine, is tremendous naivete. <laughs> right. That we hugely underestimate how hard things are to create. And we overcommit and then we're in too far and we just have to make it happen. <laughs> and then something beautiful happens. Right. Usually it's much harder than you thought, but it's worth it. So to me, that, that's one version of the beginner's mind is just, I'm an enthusiastic person. And I, when I come across an idea that animates me, I, I want to learn everything about it and make it happen in the world. Mm. And then I jump in and it's, you know, go crazy for a while <laughs> until right. I figure something out about how to do it. You know, that's really neat, 
Chris, my, my growing up experience, one of the labels that, that got tacked onto me that was very painful for me at times was, uh, you know, I was labeled as, as intense. And mm. if, if that happened, you know, it was, it was hurtful for me. And I've realized over my more than 60 years on planet earth that my, it, it's not about intensity. It is about that beginner's mind. It's about curiosity. It's about energy, the burst of energy, as you described a second ago. Um, and that that's an asset. That's a strength. Um, but sometimes it takes a lot of work to actually see it that way. Do you, is that a fair statement? Definitely. And I think, you know, I, I would pin some of the blame on schools and how it creates a huge fear of failure yeah. in so many people. And for whatever reason, I have a bigger fear of not doing something that's important, a, a fear of letting something stay dormant that needs to be alive. Mm. So I'm willing to go through the hell sometimes it takes to then make yeah. it into something real. Yeah, exactly. Okay, two more, two more quick questions bef before we move on to the, to the final uh, icing on the cake at the end here. So, um, I'm, Chris, I'm super interested in the idea that teachers – Educators, public, private, charter, um, become more comfortable with being the the spokesperson of their teaching and learning, or the spokesperson for their school. Um, and I'm interested that you list on your resume, you know, media relations that you represented your organization and education topics, you know, on NBC Nightly News, the Today Show, NPR. So I wonder if you could speak to our listeners here about what that means and why why is it important to be able to speak out and be the spokesperson for the the school culture that you uh, that you live in and the work that you do you know, and better even than than a teacher as a spokesperson is a student i would yes. say so whenever possible to to lift up those voices yeah. um, i guess the, the essence of it for me is that we, I think we all know that a lot of schools don't work very well, um, that education as a whole leaves a lot of our potential untapped. Um, I think we've come to accept this maybe more than we should. And so anytime when we can speak out and say, hey, actually, it's possible to do things differently and it, it doesn't take, you know, vast wealth or extreme circumstances, but we can tap into the everyday wisdom that we have that tells us what kids need and that listens to kids explaining what they need. Mm. Then I think we have to take every opportunity to do that. Um, we just need those reminders that this can happen differently. And the way education has been does not, and I really hope is not the way it happens in the future. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. You know, the whole point of this podcast that I started um, la about last summer in August of of 2019, uh, you know, the point of the podcast is to elevate the voices of educators and education leaders and in uh, several spectacular cases of students as well. And I think what I've been thinking a lot about is that we as educators, this is especially true in Hawaii, but I think it's true, you know, maybe globally is that educators really walk on the humble side of the street. And one of the things that I want to do is to be able to give them an opportunity to talk about it uh, and, and talk about their work, their imagination, their innovation, their creativity, um, and then put it out there. And the more we do that, the more everybody begins to get comfortable with telling their story. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what I've been working on here with this series. Love it. I love it. We need that and more. <laughs> we do. We do. Okay. So, so last question here, you know, in your interest section. So, 
I think you're okay talking about this, but you um, are working on a book. Um, uh, it's in development on how adolescents develop their identity. Um, so, so far, Chris, what would you like our radio audience to know about your work? Yeah, so I'm writing a book that is for adolescents themselves. And the idea, and this is actually a good segue into the Argonaut work also, okay. uh, came from a project when we were starting Millennium. And we realized that there are so many frameworks out there to think about academics. You know, there are a million ways of conceptualizing our science pathways and English learning development, all of that. But what about all the other stuff? Um, the experiences that when we look back on our adolescence mattered so much to us and shaped who we are. It's everything from, you know, the first job you got to pivotal experiences with friends, you know, joining a team or leading a team or resolving a conflict, mm -hmm. uh, participating in a political process that was important to you. Like, those things also deserve attention and don't need to just be left to chance. Right. So we started creating um, what we call this list of essential experiences and it's meant to be a never-ending list. We're not trying to document every single one. It's more of a, an interesting question yeah. of, you know, when you were an adolescent or asking adolescents themselves, like, what seems like the most valuable positive experience in your life? And so we made this list, and then we began playing with it, um, literally. We turned it into playing cards, <laughs> and we would give each other cards like a challenge. Like, I challenge you to, you know, open your first bank account right. and a kid might challenge their parents and say, Hey, it looks like you've never done this one. <laughs> like I challenge you to learn this conflict resolution technique or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, uh, we, we just began to have a lot of fun with it and it helped us remember, like I was saying earlier, this kind of everyday wisdom, things that we know are important, but sometimes we get distracted from. So that is the essence of Argonaut. I can say more about that. And that's also the essence of the book. Uh, so the book is essentially a choose your own adventure style guide for middle and high schoolers. That's about all of these different experiences that might help you figure out who you are and what you can do in the world mm. and how you actually do them. Uh, so it's, it's been a lot of fun to write and hopefully we'll be uh, in a bookstore near you sometime in the next year or so. Wow. That's just marvelous, Chris. And, and I'll just say right here, right now on the radio <laughs> that um, I stand in support of, uh, you know, bringing your work here to Hawaii. I would love to work with you on that in the months and years to come. Um, I, love Thank the, you. I love the idea that you're, you're writing it to the adolescents. Um, that's, that's spectacular. So perfect segue into Argonaut. So in, in June of this year, you stepped away as the CEO at Millennium and began the Argonaut project. So talk, talk us through how that happened. Um, I know it happened within the pandemic itself. Um, and how did it unfold? Yeah. So like anyone else, I was scratching my head trying to figure out what to make of what was happening this spring. And I knew this book was developing and we had this awesome curriculum around essential experiences, but I was feeling anxious and overwhelmed with what exactly to do with it. And I was talking to one of my mentors in, in May as the pandemic was in full force. And he said, you know, the last thing you should do is spend the whole summer thinking about what to do. Like you just need to start getting this out there in the world and things will become clearer. And so he, he kind of challenged me to just start a program, start a project, um, start getting this out there for kids and see what happens. 
So I took him up on that and very soon after uh, launched Argonaut, which is a way to, essentially, it's a program that has two goals. One is to help kids have a really positive group experience. Mm. This is true, you know, especially needed in the pandemic, but frankly needed at any point. Right. A group of peers your age who you can be really honest with, <clears throat> facilitated by an adult um, who is there not to dictate to you, but to keep the space really open and authentic and safe so you can process what's happening um, in the world and in your life as an adolescent. So part of it is that group, and the other part are these essential experiences where you can take on a challenge, um, everything from you know opening a bank account and learning about money to figuring out how to resolve a conflict that's happening in your life to digging into your ancestry and figuring out how did your family get here and what, how did they get to be who they are? So there are 50 of these different experiences and, and more are being created by students. Hmm. Um, so Argonaut is a way to have a group experience and then these individual challenges that help you grow. So if I'm a parent, Chris, and I'm listening to this and let's say I'm a little confused, like, are we talking about, is this a school? Is this what my child is going to be doing all the time? Or is this in conjunction with the school that they're attending? Like, how does that work? Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a whole school of itself. It's being offered in a few different ways. So we have uh, online groups that kids are signing up for, parents are signing them up for, um, that are mixing kids from all over, uh, which I especially love. We have some groups with you know three countries represented in one group of 10 kids, you know, all the time zones in the U.S., um, and it's been really neat to see them start to form these kind of global friend pods. Right. Um, so they can sign up for one of those. And then uh, the other option for now is it's being baked into a couple pilot schools um, who are testing it out as advisory curriculum. So um, it, it's not intended to be a replacement for school, um, mm -hmm. but more of a supplement that either a school or a parent could say, hey, we, we really need this. Our kids really need this. Um, we'd like to add it in in some way. But I could imagine that it would be in a kind of subtle way, um, maybe not so subtle way, very influential in terms of um, how educators see the current work that they're doing and what the possibilities are here in Argonaut. A bit of possible reverse engineering going on? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I really believe in the deep wisdom of teachers that they know, you know that some of the stuff that we do in school doesn't really matter and some of it really, really matters. And great teachers know it, it's about relationship and facilitating these really um, long-lasting, memorable positive experiences. Mm. So for those teachers, I want this to be a form of permission. You know, here is something that's a, a curriculum you can tap into, but really you're, you're tapping into your own wisdom. And this is kind of the vehicle to share it with a kid. Okay. So dive into the weeds here for, for just a second. So what, what does an Argonaut group session look like? Yeah. So we, a typical way for those online groups is they meet twice a week for an hour each and it's 10 kids at a time, mm. again, drawn from all over um, the world, um, but all the same age. So all middle school kids. And what they, they first do is uh, the, the first part that we call the third thing. And uh, to explain that, so, you know, the way middle schoolers often connect, and I think high schoolers in many ways, this is true too, is to be side by side looking at something else, looking at the third thing. Mm -hmm. And that could be a video game, a movie, a social situation that's unfolding in front of them. You know, it's, um, 
because they are so sensitive socially that staring at each other face-to-face contact, which unfortunately Zoom creates, is often not optimal. It can be kind of overstimulating. So we try to create that third thing um, in the first part of an Argonaut session, which is to offer up uh, someone's life story or a situation in the world or some kind of teaching um, that we can all look at and wonder about. So um, you know, to, to give you an example, we, uh, one of the Argonaut challenges is to learn how to build your own habits, uh, whether that's a, a health habit or a ritual in your day. And so we looked at some interesting stories of professional athletes who sometimes have developed really intricate and, and interesting, sometimes weird habits <laughs> that help them get to a place of peak performance. Mm-hmm. And then that helps us kind of wonder together. So what would I create? You know, is it I want to do push-ups every day or is it about a habit of gratitude or, you know, whatever it is to realize for kids that they have the power to create their own habits. Um, it's just as one example, a really powerful uh, realization. And and baked into that is the essential experiences. So it could be, you know, I'm going to cook a meal today or I'm going to start a journal for the first time or whatever that is, right? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So as a, as a parent, again, one more question, what, what will my child gain from this experience? Yeah. So I'd say two things. Uh, one is a sense of connection with a group that they trust and they can be really real with. <laughs> We've heard a lot of parents say, you know, I think that they really like it, but they won't tell me what they talk about in the group. <laughs> and I say like, good, that's good. a sign that it's working. Yes. <laughs> they need that space, you know, especially when we're cooped up um, in the pandemic. Yeah. Adolescents need a space to be around their peers, you know, still facilitated, but not with their parents, where they can be really real with each other and ask questions about whatever is coming to their minds. Um, so that's one is connection. Mm-hmm. And then the other is you know, to create positive memories, um, to remember that time when you, you cooked a meal for the first time for your family ever, um, or when you started keeping a journal, um, or when you found a mentor. You know, that these are the things that if we experience them in adolescence, will keep supporting us and shaping us even into adulthood. Mm. And, and Chris, I'm just, you know, my my day job is at Apple. I do this podcast as a labor of love. And I'm just thinking like, you know, in this particular moment in 2020, never has there been a more crazy moment to be doing this kind of connective work because we've got these devices that can actually do that. You know, uh, we just rolled out a new translation app that allows you, uh, you know, a kid who is a part of one of these groups from China to actually participate. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like connectivity and the ability to connect with people and to have conversations. It just seems like such a, a rich moment where we can see things as, uh, see the moment as a silver lining moment rather than as, you know, a negative moment. I agree. And that chance to enter a new group that's not just from where you are is really helpful for adolescents because it, it gives them a space to reset their identity and try on something a little different. Okay. You now, when, when you've been with the same kids, you know, for your whole childhood, that, that's obviously a really important experience, but it, in some ways it can be limiting. Mm. And to then show up in a new group um, that's well facilitated, you get the chance to be a little different and try out a part of you that's just emerging. So right. yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that silver lining too. Right. 
Okay, so final question here. This has been so much fun. It's gone by really fast. Um, this question about Argonaut is around your challenge board, which I think is not actually public-facing, right? That's uh, It's still part of the login process to see the challenge board. Is that right? It is, yeah. All of the challenges are available for anyone, um, but then the more uh, detailed curriculum is for participants in the program, at least so far. But I'm open to sharing it with anyone who would like to see it. Oh, that's cool. So last night, I, I dove into the deep end of the pool, um, into the challenge board, and Chris, I was just blown away. Um, for my, I think my first question is, how long did it take to stand all of this up? I mean, it, it, this feels like a three-year project, but you must have done it in just weeks. Well, it, it came you know, when we had those three years of research to launch the school. It came during those years. So in a sense, it did take three years to gather these ideas. And then the, the technical side of putting the website together and recording the podcasts took uh, maybe about a month altogether. Um, a lot of uh, trial and error, <laughs> right. learning how to podcast and web design, all of that. I hear you. I've been through that myself. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I can imagine. <laughs> so, so Chris, as I'm looking at the challenge board, it looks like there's about 40 challenges um, right now. And if I thought it'd be fun if I could just ask you about a couple of them um, that really jumped out at me. So one of them, let's start with one of the challenges is forgive someone. So what is that challenge about? And if you were to click on that button, what would happen? What would you see? Yeah, so each challenge is presented as kind of a little uh, tile. And if you click on it, you get a podcast and a how-to guide, and in some cases, a story. Mm. So, And they're divided into these five categories. Uh, just briefly mention our independence, connection, healthy body and mind, waking up, which means essentially figuring out how other people make meaning, and then making the world better. So... With that uh, challenge you mentioned of forgiving someone, we think of it as one of the early ones on that path of making the world better. That you know ultimately culminates in learning how to be a change maker and how to really make something happen to improve a situation. But it starts with the ability to forgive. Uh, and other challenges like standing up for someone are in that kind of beginning of that pathway. And, and so, for, yeah. so you and I are adults, but from an adolescent's perspective... What, what is this about? Yeah, so they one important rule with Argonaut is that no one can tell you which challenge to do. Um, people can offer one to you or suggest it, but it's always the student's choice. So they're looking over this board trying to figure out, you know, what feels meaningful, maybe a little scary. Um, what could I take on? And they're in this group, so they might be inspired by someone else who had an experience. So if an adolescent chose that one, it might be that by looking at that, they become aware that there's someone they have a long, you know, difficult conflict with. Maybe it's, you know, your sibling that you always fight with or someone who used to be a close friend and they would like to do something about that. Mm -hmm. So they click on that and it would give them some suggestions for how to go about a process of forgiveness, uh, including a, a practical outcome, like maybe writing a letter to them. Um, and then they would have this group to share it in. That's the other key piece, that they're not just doing this on their own, but they're with a group of about 10 other really supportive friends that they can say, this is what I'm hoping to do. I'm not totally sure if it's going to work or you know, what do you think? And actually workshop it together. Right. Got it. 
Okay, so one more, but before I ask about this this one more challenge, I just for our radio audience, I want to walk myself through some of the challenges that I'm actually looking at on screen right now, and I'm going to do it diagonally. So starting at the top left, it's like take public transit independently, join a team, speak your truth about body image issues, uh, deconstruct an advertisement, become a mentor or tutor, um, discover your privilege, start a business, become an apprentice. This is remarkable. And I can see how this list could just go on forever, as you mentioned, <laughs> Truly. right? Because it's connected to the essential experiences, which are essentially infinite. All right. So I'm going to just ask you about um, one more. This one, Great. I love this one. It's find a reason to celebrate a personal failure. So I want to talk about this last one, really from the adolescent perspective. Like, why did this one, why is this one important when you're talking about kids in middle school? You know, in middle school, middle school is a really sensitive time. And we are sensitive to how others perceive us, sensitive to making mistakes, realize we have more ability, but they're very new abilities. So if it's not part of the culture around you or encouraged to be comfortable with failure, then often the opposite happens where we become too cautious, you know, scared to test out a part of ourselves that might be part of our identity, um, scared to push ourselves too much with something academic or athletic. Um, and we really want to um, loosen that knot a little bit and let kids try things and realize that it's really okay to fail. In fact, if you're not failing, you are really limiting yourself. Mm. So um, this is one that's been really powerful for so many kids. And it came from students and adults saying, you know, honestly, one of the things that I remember the most about this age, or I think I'll remember the most is when I failed at this and what happened next, mm. you know? Right. So that it's been really beautiful to see. And, yeah. I, and I'm just from a practical website perspective, I'm looking at the image, which is of a broken plate uh, lying on a sort of concrete floor. Um, and I can imagine how fun it must have been to try to figure out what's the perfect image for each challenge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and then I'll also point out to our listeners that when you mentioned each challenge has a podcast, they're actually just about three minutes long. And it's you sort of illustrating using words um, what the particular challenge is about, which is really neat when you see that like, oh, this is just two, three minutes long. Great. I'm going to click on it. Um, that's fantastic design. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you're receiving it that way. And, and in the book version of this, they'll each start with a student story, mm. which I think will be also a really helpful way to connect. It's written by a student uh, who's of this age and is talking about their direct you know, lived experience of this. Right. Got it. Okay. So as we finish up here, Chris, how do people find out about Argonaut School? Yeah. Simple way uh, on our website, which is argonaut.school. And um, they're also welcome to reach out to, to me or our team directly. There's a contact page there. Uh, we are in the very early stages of a new project. You know, we just launched about four months ago. Mm. So that means we're even more open and receptive to, you know, new ideas, questions, ways to collaborate. So we, we welcome all of that. That's fantastic. Well, Chris, so this has been awesome. I have to share with you that I, I bet I, I placed a bet with myself last night uh, as I was, you know, preparing a little bit for this. Um, that there was no way that I was going to be able to do this interview in 30 minutes. 
have, we have failed, Chris. We've lost the bet here. It's a spectacular failure. Um, but that's well, okay. In honor of celebrating a failure. There yes, we go. Yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking. So this has been a wonderful conversation. Chris Baum, thank you so much for this time. Um, I look forward to staying in touch with you. And please, you and your wonderful family in the Bay Area, please stay safe. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to more to come. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care.